WAGP.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible line. As always, this is an hour for us to dialogue over the only book God ever wrote. We call it the Holy Bible. If you've been studying it and there's an issue you want to discuss, a question you have, or maybe some application as it relates to your personal life, again, all you need to do is pick up the phone. The number locally is 525-1859, toll free at 877. The call letters WAGP followed by 980, 877-WAGP980, or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. When you call, you can remain anonymous and simply dictate your question, or you can go on the air, and of course, we always give uh, priority to live callers. number of email questions have come in from different places, and we're going to try to respond to those as well as live callers as they uh, dialogue with us today. Rick, as always, it's great to be here. It is indeed, Pastor, and as you said, we have a number of questions already, so let's get to them. Um, this person writes, Pastor Carl, I'm not wanting to mix religion with politics, but I, I know they meet. Who did you vote for and why? And should a Christian vote for Mark Sanford? Well, it's a good question, and certainly uh, our Christianity intersects every realm of life. Uh, The Bible says that we're the salt of the earth. It says we're the light of the world. Uh, I didn't vote. I can't vote. Uh, I I missed it by a short distance in terms of where they draw the line. Uh, So uh, I don't have an opportunity to be involved in today's election if you are not aware of it. Uh, Our governor a few months back appointed a replacement uh, for our senator, and uh, Tim Scott has taken his place, and the first congressional seat has opened up. And so uh, if I were voting, though, I would be voting today for Curtis Bostick. He's a fine Christian man, understands uh, the social issues as it relates to God's Word. He's fiscally conservative, realizes that we are headed on a course of disaster in our nation financially, and that unless uh, there are some people who take some strong stands and are willing to make difficult decisions, that the price that we will pay down the road will be far, far greater so um, would I vote for Mark Sanford? I wouldn't tell anyone who to vote for. I'm just telling you who I voted for. But would I vote for Mark Sanford? No. Uh, that's not to say I might not vote for him 10 years from now. But I do believe uh, it's a biblical principle that character matters. Character does matter. Let's say, uh, let's say somebody wants to come and date your daughter. And uh, the person has been immoral with multiple young ladies and 
And then he comes to Christ and he says, oh, I'd like to date your daughter, pastor. Can I date your daughter? Well, not in the short term. I would want someone to uh, have proven character and a changed life uh, before I would entrust such a person uh, to date my daughter. Because going down the aisle and saying I do doesn't change a person's character. And I think there are some times in, in the life of a Christian that they need to reestablish their trust. It's like in the pastorate. If a pastor falls morally, most denominations have a minimum of five years before they would even consider the person for ministry again. Sometimes it's longer. Uh, it's not an issue of forgiveness. And I know that's how Mark Sanford has painted it. God can forgive, but character needs to be proven. Just forget the fact that he didn't keep his marriage vows. Forget that for a second. Uh, I love this great state of South Carolina. And uh, he left the throne. Uh, He left it unguarded. And the role of governor is to make sure that our state is protected. And it wasn't protected. Uh, No one knew how to get in contact with the man. They didn't know where he was. He was in Argentina sleeping with some woman. And uh, the, the throne, so to speak, was empty. And if there was an emergency in our state, uh, there was no one who knew how to get in contact with the governor. Not to mention even the lieutenant governor didn't know that he was in charge. And so it was a a terrible, terrible thing. And I believe his judgment was just clouded by some character issues. And I hope uh, the best for him, I hope maybe 10 years from now, um, there'll be some trust reestablished in his life. But no, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't hire him to be the local dog catcher. Absolutely not. It would be insane for me to vote for him. Anyway, I appreciate the question and its straightforwardness. You asked it, so I answered it. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a live call. All right. We're actually calling them back uh, right now. There they are. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Um, yes, my sister is Church of Christ, and I'm sure of my salvation, but she tells me that if she cannot convert me to Church of Christ, that I'm going to hell. And I'd like your views on the Church of Christ and their uh, policies. Well, it's a good question. Uh, there are several issues. And again, I, I want to be careful here because sometimes a church may have in its name Church of Christ, but they are not associated with that league of churches uh, that call themselves the Church of Christ. They would be quick to say we're not a denomination, we're autonomous, and that's true. And in the truest sense, that is a biblical principle that local churches are autonomous. But the Church of Christ, I do believe, has some major error in it. There's a lot of things you can be wrong on and still go to heaven. You can believe that, you know, the church shouldn't have musical instruments, as the Church of Christ typically does. You could believe that and still go to heaven, you know, so you go to a church and people sing a cappello and there's no musical instruments. Fine. You want to do it that way. That's fine. You could believe that we should celebrate the Lord's Supper every single Sunday as they do. Um, I don't think that's necessary. I think there's a freedom to do that if a local assembly decides to do that, but I don't think that's mandated by scripture. What Jesus said is, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, You could believe, as they do, that you can lose your salvation and still go to heaven. Um, There are Christian denominations that teach you can be assured of salvation, but not eternally secure. That is to say, I know right now I'm saved, but that doesn't mean I can know five years from now or ten years from now that I might do something or renounce the faith altogether. 
Well, again, if someone's truly saved, the Bible teaches that will not happen. The Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints, that if someone is truly born again, their life will change, there will be fruit, there will be evidence, and they will persevere in the faith. First uh, John 2.19 teaches that if someone came into the church and then left the church and renounced the faith, that they were not real Christians. If they had been of us, John wrote, they would have remained with us, but the fact that they went out from us demonstrated that they were not of us. In other words, if you have salvation, you can't lose it. If you quote-unquote lost it, you never had it to begin with. The bigger issue with the Church of Christ is if you ask them, how is someone saved? They're going to say, repent, believe, confess, be baptized. There it is right there, four steps. Repent, believe, confess, be baptized. And they would predicate those four steps as part of the plan of salvation, where historical Christianity would say repent or believe or both because it's the flip side of the same coin. You cannot truly repent without believing. You cannot truly believe without repenting. In the Gospel of John, which is written, the Bible tells us, with an evangelistic purpose. In fact, it's the only book in all of the New Testament that expressly states that it's written with an evangelistic purpose in mind. And so when John comes to the end of his letter, he says, uh, many other signs, therefore Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So a twofold purpose, one conversion, secondly growth stated specifically with that view in mind. And yet this book that has a stated purpose of being evangelistic in nature, and certainly other books would have that effect, but this is the only stated book in all the New Testament with that, with that kind of you know punch behind it, never once mentions the word repent. But again, it's impossible to believe without truly repenting. But here's the point of Rob. They would make confession in baptism as part of the plan of salvation rather than as a fruit of salvation. And so the Church of Christ, the Christian church denomination, you get churches like Savannah Christian, uh, Disciples of Christ, and again, there's exceptions to the rule. And they would take, and again, if you really want to know where these churches are, just go to their doctrinal statement. And if they have Acts 2.38, as a way to salvation, then you know they're preaching a different gospel. And so they'll take a verse like this, Acts 2.38, or they use Romans 6.4. There's no water in Romans 6.3 and 4. He's talking about the baptism of the Spirit, or they'll refer to um, John 3, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit. Water meaning baptism rather than physical birth, um, or the washing of regeneration by the Word. Uh, They take it as baptism. When you see verses like that quoted as part of the plan of salvation, you know you are interfacing with someone who's preaching a different gospel. And so they would take Acts 2.38 that says repent, or you could just as easily have said believe. They ask the question, what must we do? What do we need to do to be made right with God? That's the context. Peter says in one word, repent. The same questions later asked in the book of Acts in the 16th chapter, what must I do to be saved? In one word, believe. Again, it's the flip side of the same coin. Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And so the church of Christ would say, unless you are baptized, you're not forgiven. And they would argue that you make your decision in the water, so to speak. Well, the word for here in the English text 
um, can mean different things. Uh, it means one thing in Greek, but we are limited when we translate from the original language sometimes to a receptor language. And so repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin does not mean in order to be forgiven of your sin. It means because of. That's the thought. The same word that's used uh, in Luke's gospel, they repented for or at. Same Greek word at the preaching of John the Baptist. Um, And so the, the thought here is this. It's like if I give you a trophy for winning, I don't give you a trophy in order to win the race, but because you've won the race. If I give you a medal for bravery, it's not in order to be brave, but because you are brave. And so when he says, repent, let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sin, it's not in order to be forgiven, but because you are forgiven. That's the thought. They repented because of, they repented because of the preaching uh, of Jonah, not in order to be forgiven. So that's the thought behind the word. So they are, they're in gross error in terms of what they are actually teaching and um, it's unfortunate. Uh, most of them, though, however, do not go to the extreme to say that if you're not in the church of Christ, you're not saved. But some of them do. Some of them are extremely warped. Uh, there is a church of Christ in Raleigh that argues that unless you're baptized in their very baptismal, you cannot be saved. I mean, how, how wacko can you get? But, um, you know, you should red flag any organization that would say salvation is exclusively through our organization, rather than the view that salvation is uh, through the through the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation isn't found in an act like baptism. Salvation is not found in a church, be it Baptist, Catholic, Episcopalian, Presbyterian. Jesus said, "I am the way." He didn't say Baptists were the way or Church of Christ were the way or Roman Catholics were the way. He said, "I am the way. No one comes to the Father but through me." Peter said it in these words, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So her teaching and thinking on baptism is very, very warped. And if it would help you, I have a handout where I walk through the most commonly asked questions about baptism. And I go through the verses that sometimes people rip out of the context of the New Testament. And you can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean if you take it out of context. It says, for instance, in the Bible, there is no God. It says that right in the Bible. But contextually, it says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And that totally dis- changes the meaning of what's being said. All right, very good. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. And we do have an uh, email question. Uh, let's go to that one right now. Uh, again, tbl at net. I need to get rid of a screen here. We are. That's all right. Good. All right, good deal. Um, a listener from uh, Texas by the name of Liz, says, I was saved when I was 12 years old and was attending a Methodist church at the time that taught the salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ. But I was not baptized by immersion, but sprinkled instead. I have been attending Baptist or non-denominational churches for the past few years and have slowly realized that my baptism was clearly not biblical. 
I know without a doubt that I am saved, but I feel very conflicted about how I was baptized. I would like your advice on what you would instruct I do. Well, it's a good question. And uh, infant baptism, the first historical record we have, there's one in 197 A.D., Uh, that's a little bit debated, that particular one, but uh, let's just give the benefit of the doubt uh, that it's possible that there is one recorded incident of infant baptism. But for the most part, it's not until the late 370s, the end of the 4th century, that um, you find uh, infant baptism being practiced. And so it's uh, interesting to think about that, that it's almost 300 years after the inception of the church that people begin to baptize infants. Well, why did they baptize infants? Well, the infant mortality rate in the third and fourth centuries was over 50%. And so a lot of people lost their children through things that today we take for granted through modern medicine, that the kids just didn't make it. And some people were somewhat concerned for the status of their children. And uh, what would happen to this child if this child died? And they thought, well, maybe baptism somehow would make it right and, you know, bring him inside the covenant. But, but the Bible teaches that if a little child dies, the child doesn't go to hell. The child goes to heaven. I don't care if the baby's miscarried from the womb. I don't care if the baby is brutally aborted, uh, something that God calls a wicked evil. Uh, I don't care if the baby dies at a month or six months. Uh, A little child goes to heaven. Now, is there a verse, per se, that teaches that? Not as such. There's not a single verse that teaches it any more than there's a single verse that teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, you won't even find the word Trinity in the Bible. But the biblical truth that there's one God who coexists in three co-eternal persons One God existing in three co-eternal, co-equal persons is plainly taught in the Word of God. And when you let Scripture interpret Scripture, it's plain in the Word of God that when little children die, they go home to be with the Lord. There are several passages that would, I believe, argue this in both the Old and the New Testament. King David, for instance, a man after God's own heart, God's anointed king, got into trouble on one occasion, if you remember, and he committed adultery and then actually was involved in the murder of uh, Uriah, who was, of course, the husband of the woman he had an adulterous relationship with. And, of course, uh, God dealt with his his king, and uh, God used uh, the dealings that he brought him through to bring him, of course, to genuine repentance. And, of course, he had a little baby, who got very, very sick. And the Bible says the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. And David inquired of God for the child. In other words, he prayed and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. So he's in prayer and fasting and he's begging God for the life of this little baby. Then it happened on the seventh day. So this is a long protracted time with David on his face before God, not eating any food. Uh, That's a long fast, seven days. And the servants of David were afraid because on the seventh day, the child died. And they were afraid to tell him that the child was dead for they said, behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him. And he did not listen to our voice. 
How then can we tell him that the child is dead since he might do harm to himself? If he's in this state and he thinks the baby's still alive, what will he do when he finds out the baby's dead? So they're whispering to one another, and David perceives, the Bible says here in Second Samuel 12, that the baby was dead. So um, he finally asks, is the child dead? And they said, he's dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house, and when he had requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but while the child died, you arose and ate food. That makes sense to us, David. And he said, well, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. He thought, well, maybe God would change his mind and he would spare this little baby. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not. Then he makes this incredible statement. He said, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David recognized that David, whom the Bible describes as a saved man, sinless, no. Um, You know, the people who are in the Bible, uh, God paints a picture, a biography of them, blemishes and all, and David's no exception. But he's with the Lord in heaven, David, and he recognized that at his death, he would go see this child. When you come into the New Testament, and by the way, there's other passages we could look at, like uh, in the book of Jonah, Jonah in the fourth chapter. Jonah's an interesting little book. You remember, he's the prophet who ran from God, and the Lord God allowed him to be swallowed by a great fish. And so you have this prodigal prophet in chapter one of Jonah, a praying prophet in chapter two as he's in the belly of the fish. And uh, he's seeking uh, God's mercy on his life. And he turns into the preaching prophet in chapter three, where he goes to the Ninevites and understand he was a patriot of Israel. And when he was told to go to Nineveh to win the Ninevites to Christ, um, he went in the opposite direction. But it would be like saying, think of uh, the United States' worst enemy. I don't know who that would be today. During the Cold War, we might say it was Russia or, or Um, some people might even say, well, China and, you know, I mean, or Iran or Afghanistan, think of your worst enemy. And God says, go win them to Jesus. Uh, go, go, go tell them about the coming Messiah. Of course, this is pre-cross. And these are a people who were brutally hateful towards the people of Israel, but it results in the greatest revival. Anyway, in the fourth chapter, Jonah is all upset and he becomes the pouting prophet And uh, there in the fourth chapter, he's all sad about his little uh, bush that God lets grow up over his head. And the Lord commands a worm to eat it, and it it dies. And and God dialogues with his prophet. And he says, listen, Jonah, you know, shouldn't you you have had compassion on the people of Nineveh? Uh, There's about 600,000 people who live in greater Nineveh. Uh, And not only, uh, and and archaeology, by the way, confirms that, and it's consistent with the biblical record because God describes 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right and their left hand. That's a Hebraism, they're little kids. He said, listen, I I had compassion on the little kids. I had compassion even on the animals. And you're just getting upset over a plant. Your priorities are way out of whack. You come into the New Testament, Jesus uses an illustration where he likens the kingdom of God to little children. 
Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and so forth. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. And so the point is, is that Jesus, who's the embodiment of truth, he's the way, the truth, and the life, never uses error to teach truth. Every illustration, every parable that he speaks uses truth to teach truth. So for Jesus to liken and compare the kingdom of God to little children, and for that not to be true, to teach error, uh, to make a point, would be the opposite of who who he is. And so by application, the Bible teaches that little children, when they die, they go home to be with the Lord. You say, what age are they accountable? I don't know. God doesn't give an age. He's too wise Uh, to not give us an age. If God said, well, the age is 12, which some people have thought since um, Jesus was in the temple reasoning with the scribes and the Pharisees at the age of 12, they said, well, you know, you must be accountable by 12. And in some denominations, uh, they make 12 uh, kind of a magic age for church membership or confirmation or whatever the church polity might be. God's too wise to give us an age. Uh, if he said 12, some of us wouldn't get serious with our kids until they were 11. Um, you know, children are accountable at different age. When a child comes to the point where they can understand the conviction of the Spirit of God that they're a sinful person and that by the grace of the Lord Jesus, by his substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection, that he alone can make the payment that their sin needs, that they cannot save themselves but they need a savior. When they're old enough to understand that, then they're accountable. And God alone knows that that's different for each child, but he knows when it happens. But little children, uh, he has one in his arms, another stands next to him in a parallel situation, but the same teaching on a different occasion. He compares them to those who go to heaven. Great question. Let's, uh, so to take all the air out of the balloon, uh, you should get baptized uh, as a, you're baptized as a little baby, but you need to be baptized as an adult, as a believer. That's what the Bible teaches. It says, believe and then be baptized. Now, man's totally reversed it. We baptize little infants and later ask them to believe. But God's order, Jesus said it, Mark 16, believe and then be baptized. And so you really weren't baptized. You were ratizoed. You were sprinkled. And the word baptize means to immerse, to totally submerge. And so you should go on and practice believer's baptism. And if it would help, Liz, I think from Texas, is that where she's from? Mm -hmm. If she would uh, like, we'd be happy to send you a handout on what the Bible says about baptism that I think would be very helpful. Because you don't want to take my opinion on it. You want to ask, what does the word of God say? Has God spoken clearly on this? And I think he really has. All right. We have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Morning, Rick. Pastor. Good morning. Thanks for calling. How can we help? Uh, I don't know if you can. This is uh, your favorite bearded stoic that sits and listens every Sunday morning. Okay. Uh, You just happen to be talking on a subject that's kind of close to me. Whatever happened to Uriah, or what do you think may have happened to Uriah? I mean, we we know he was killed in the battle that David had. Uh, his general sent him out to the lead point in the battle where he was killed. But from what I understand, Uriah was a Hittite. He took on the 
God of Israel followed King David and did everything he was supposed to do as the God of Israel would have him to do. And he ends up losing a wife and getting killed. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts as to whatever happened to poor Uriah. Well, I think he went home to be with the Lord. He was a distinguished man. Uh, he is later mentioned in uh, the Kings as one of uh, David's uh, mighty men. And the mighty men of David were great men, great men of God who were chosen because of their character. And I think David knew that he was a man of great character. I mean, he gave to Uriah his own death sentence. He, he wrote the letter, signed it, sealed it with the king's seal, so to speak, handed it to Uriah and said, give this to General Joab. And he could trust that man that he had such integrity of heart because it was a reflection of his relationship with God, that he wouldn't even open that letter. But that very letter that he would hand carry to the general was the plan on how his life would be assassinated. So I believe he was a a great man, a man that we'll we'll meet in heaven someday. Um, It's obviously very sad what David did. I'm sure David had deep regrets. Let's go to the next question. I appreciate that one. That's an excellent one. All right. Uh, Last week, we ended our program with this question, and you asked me to bring it back uh, so you could further expound on it. All right. But But we have a live call, so we give them priority. That's right. right. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, you're on the air. Go ahead. Well, I don't know. Is the volume up there, Rick? I'm sorry. I guess we missed them. Maybe they can call back. Uh, Does she want to try again? Uh, Maybe maybe he's on line two. Let me try line two. All right. Go ahead. All right. Let's go to the next question then, and hopefully we can come back. Very good. Um, Last week we asked this question, and you wanted to further expound. Uh, The listener wanted to know um, who Hebrews 2 verses 6 through 8 is talking about. Okay, let me just turn to the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews is uh, a book on not brewing coffee. Hebrews, a uh, bad joke. Uh, it's, it's a book written to Jewish believers. And let me just set the stage. Uh, you had people in the early church, many of whom were Jewish Christians. They, as a Jew, believed that Jesus was the promised Christ, the Hebrew word, of course, being Messiah. Uh, Sometimes people think, well, it's a contradiction of terms to call someone a Jewish Christian. No, it's not. It speaks of an ethnicity first and foremost, Uh, someone who descended from Abraham. I'm Italian and Irish. Um, Because I'm an Italian and Irish person doesn't mean that I lose my Italianness or my Irishness when I become a Christian. No, not at all. So a Jew doesn't lose his ethnicity. Now, there is a sense, as taught in the book of Esther, that a Gentile can become a Jew, but only in a religious sense. So you have Jews who are ethnically Jews and who practice Judaism. You have Jews today who are ethnically Jews who don't practice anything. You have Jews today who are ethnically Jews, but embrace Jesus as their personal Lord. And that's to whom the book of Hebrews is written. And of course, uh, what that meant for many of them was great persecution. Because they identified with Jesus as the Christ, uh, it meant that they would be ostracized. It meant that they would be ignored, that their businesses would be boycotted. And he will deal with that a little bit later in the letter. And so he says here, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable in every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And that was their sin. Not that they rejected the salvation, but they neglected this salvation. And the way they did that was by some of their outer actions. Remember, all of the early church were Jewish people. Acts 1 through 7, everyone converted up in the first seven chapters of church history are Jewish people. You have your half-breeds in Acts 8, the Samaritans, beginning in Acts 10. You have your first non-Jews or Gentiles who come to faith. All of the disciples were Jews. But for the most part, as John 1, 11 and 12 records, he came to his own, but his own received him not. But he says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So for the most part, though, Jesus came to his own first to fulfill a promise that God had made in the Old Testament to the Jewish people, his own didn't receive him. And so initially, as Matthew records, he said, don't go into the way of the Gentiles, just go to the house of Israel, because God is a promise-keeping God. And by the way, if you want to know what God is doing in the world, even to this day, look at Israel. God used the Jewish people to bring about the first coming of Christ. The Bible teaches God is going to use the Jewish people to bring about the second coming of Christ. So it's not by accident what we read here in the book of Hebrews. But what they had done was they thought, well, you know, um, I'm a Christian. I would never renounce Christ. But as a Christian, as a Jewish Christian, I think I'll just continue in the uh, temple and I'll offer the prescribed sacrifices that God had ordained in the old covenant. And that way I'll look pretty Jewish and maybe folks won't bother me. And of course, uh, the writer talks about the fact that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. The old covenant was just a shadow of the new covenant, and really it could not do what only the Lord Jesus could do. He said the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. So forget the Old Testament sacrificial system. It was only a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice that God would offer when he would give his son there on Golgotha. And so they were neglecting this great salvation. After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God bearing witness with them, meaning the apostles, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to God's will. And then he goes on and he speaks about angels. And again, the whole thrust here is that um, Jesus Christ is greater than angels. He's greater than the Aaronic priesthood. Um, he's the perfect high priest. Um, he's in the line with a newer priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. He is uh, superior to anyone found under the old covenant. Uh, that the people in Hebrews 11 were looking towards Messiah, who was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Um, and therefore, when he comes to the 12th chapter, because we have so great a cloud of witnesses, we should do the same. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Ginger from Bluffton asks uh, whether you know anything about a group on Hilton Head called Princess Warriors and their prophetic prayer ministry. You know, I had not heard of this group until uh, this question has come in twice now from different people. So they must have some 
prominence over there on Bluffton and Hilton Head, and so I ended up going online, and I, I had to read a couple pages to know that they were really off-kilter theologically. Listen, he, here's the danger. When, when you have a open Bible, so to speak, when someone says, hey, God spoke to me, let me tell you what God said, and that's quote-unquote revelation that God has given you is on the same uh, level is Holy Scripture, then you are on very dangerous ground. And God gave his word, and he gave his word as a measuring stick. And so if uh, someone comes along like Joseph Smith, who's the founder of Mormonism, and he writes a, a book containing 15 books called the Book of Mormon, plus a couple other books that later come, uh, that's extra. Uh, that's beyond the measuring stick. And so in Alma chapter 7 of the Book of Mormon, for instance, Joseph Smith said and recorded from these tablets, supposedly, that he had been given that the angel Moroni or Moron, you know, interpreted for him that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. Well, the Bible says Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's what the prophet Micah predicted in Micah 6, and that's what the New Testament records. The Book of Mormon and the New Testament and the Old Testament can't both be right. He's either born in Bethlehem, as Micah the prophet records, as Luke and Matthew and Mark affirm, or he's uh, he's not. Uh, listen, he's, he's born in Bethlehem or he's born in Jerusalem. Can't be born in both places. So they have an extra revelation, and that's what this group is guilty of. And it makes uh, people feel spiritual and like big shots, I suppose. Let me tell you, you know, how to prophesy for the Lord. And the only prophesying we should be doing is what God has already recorded in his book, the 66 books of the Bible. And we don't need to be going beyond that, finding some new revelation. Every cult is built on some vision, some dreams, some new revelation, God directly speaking to them beyond the bounds of Scripture. And you are in dangerous, dangerous ground when you do that. And this group is on very dangerous grounds. I read about them. I read their founder. I read uh, a large portion of what this person said. I listened to a five-minute clip. It's, it's, it's bad stuff. Not, not good. I'd run far away from it. Let's go to the next caller or question. We do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. My name is Leslie, and I was just wondering how significant is it that we pray? And what's the point of praying if God already knows our heart's desires and His will is going to happen anyway? Well, Leslie, I appreciate that question, and it is a good question, and it's one that we should ask. Um, If you go online, it might be extremely helpful to you. I have a series called Back to Basics, and one of the uh, handouts is on prayer. And I walk through what the Bible says about praying. God commands us to pray. He says to pray without ceasing. Uh, There are different types of prayer in the Bible. There's adoration. Uh, So when we think of prayer, sometimes we think simply in terms of requests that we're making. But prayer is much further beyond that. There's adoration or praise. Uh, That's a form of prayer in the Word of God. And God is worthy of our praise. And so... Uh, it's a wonderful thing to worship the living God and to tell him um, how grateful you are for who he is, whether it's his providence or his sovereignty or his mercy or his grace or his compassion or whatever aspect, his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, whatever aspect of God's dimension. So that's one aspect of prayer. There's confession. 
And confession is something that it's a form of prayer in the Word of God. You, there's gr- the great uh, confessional prayers in Scripture, like in Psalm 32 or or even uh, Psalm 51, uh, that we we spoke a little bit about this morning about King David, and you know when he's finally confronted with his sin, his heart's broken over it, and he confesses it, and you can read of his confession there in that great Psalm. And so God calls us to pray confessionally that there's a time to ask him for forgiveness. And he promises God's people who have received Jesus Christ as their savior, that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. And confession is not to quote unquote, get saved again. It's to maintain intimacy with God. If you uh, tell one of your children, listen, um, don't play near the street. It's not safe. And I want you to just stay in the yard and you come home from work and you find your 10-year-old with a cast on his arm. Well, what happened? And your your wife says, well, he was playing in the street today. And he says, oh, daddy, I'm so sorry for breaking my arm. Has he confessed his sin? No, all he's done is confess the symptom. What was his sin? His sin was he rebelled against his daddy's authority. He did what his daddy expressly told him not to do. Don't play in the street. And so true confession, it reestablishes not a relationship with God, but your intimacy with God. It brings your will back in line with God's will. And, and we're not to confess just the symptoms that sin brings and the problems that we invite upon ourselves when we, uh, when we sin against God, but we, we deal with the rebelliousness of heart. So there's prayers of adoration, prayers of confession. There's prayers of thanksgiving. Remember when Jesus healed 10 lepers? And only one turned and fell and said, thank you, Lord Jesus. Jesus said, didn't I heal 10? Where are the other nine? And a person who is ungrateful, who doesn't continually give thanks, is a person's heart that's sliding away from God. When you look at uh, Romans 1, where he describes the reprobate, the person who falls away from God. It begins with no praise and no thanks. And so Paul will say, professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. And he goes through those three downward spirals where God gave them over. First to general promiscuity, where there's sexual immorality, then to homosexuality. Homosexuality is an evil of our day. I don't care what Hillary Clinton came out and said yesterday. She's wrong. I don't care what Senator Rob Portman said a few days ago, finding his son was gay. Well, I'm now in favor of gay marriage. Your circumstances may change, but the word of God does not change. It is forever established in heaven. And homosexuality, just like premarital sex or extramarital sex, is evil. It is wrong, and God's word is clear. And then the third spiral, God gave them over, and there's all kinds of general wickedness that is described. And it's really a picture of where our nation is. Um, So there's prayers of adoration, confession, thanksgiving. You know, we need to be a thankful people, for this is the will of God, that you give thanks in all things. And then there's prayers of supplication. Yes, God knows what I am going to pray before I pray it. If God didn't know that, God wouldn't be God. It's part of his nature. He is omniscient. But he's interested in our fellowship, our intimacy. He wants to make us dependent upon him because he wants to conform us into the image of his son. And so an attitude of dependence is a shaping attitude that makes us like Christ. 
And so there are many, many reasons for prayer. That's just a snippet of what's in the handout. You can go online, the Back to Basics series at Search the Scriptures, all one word. Jesus said, Search the Scriptures, they speak of me. Dot org, not com. That's another website, another organization. Search the Scriptures dot org and look for the Back to Basics series and click on the one that deals with prayer. If you want the handout that goes with it, you can call Search the Scriptures, but listen to that. It's uh, spent a couple of hours on what God's Word says about prayer. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. A caller would like to know your opinion of Hank Hanegraaff. He is known as the Bible Answer Man. Um, he's a good fellow. Um, you know, I, I haven't heard Hank in a long, long time. He used to be on a number of radio stations years ago in the 80s. Uh, I'm not sure he's on that many anymore. I I heard him once or twice where maybe I heard him give an answer, and I would have answered it a little bit differently. Uh, But he loves Christ, loves the Word of God, um, and so I'm grateful for that. And so I wouldn't dismiss that. He's trying to defend God's Word and God's truth in a culture that is increasingly against it. All right. Paul from Portland, Maine, writes, Dr. Brogy. I heard a sermon series recently on the Sermon on the Mount that this sermon had a number of truths strung together with no specific connection. The pastor is a cooperative Baptist uh, church preacher, and uh, I know he writes that they don't believe in the Bible the way that you do. Was he correct? Is there any outline to the sermon? I appreciate your ministry and your thoughts. Well, uh, Cooperative Baptists, you're right, uh, do deny biblical infallibility. They believe there are errors in the Bible. So, you know, people today use terms like inspiration, but they mean different things by it. And there's, there's like 10 views on inspiration that I cover in my course on bibliology. Everything from, I believe the Bible's inspired like Shakespeare was inspired or, you know, God inspired me to write this book on some religious truth. And so these guys were inspired to write some religious truth. But at the root of all wrong views on inspiration is there's a denial that the Bible is infallible. There are people who say, well, there are errors in the Bible and that the Bible is not true. And this movement really began in a very forthright way with the doctrine of evolution. You cannot believe in evolution and believe in the Word of God. You cannot believe in theistic evolution and believe in the Word of God. God didn't use the process of evolution to create. God's Word is very clear as Jesus taught that the first man and the first woman were named Adam and Eve, and that in Adam all sinned because in Adam's loins was every man, woman, boy, or girl who would ever be born, and that's why we're born with a sin nature, what historically we've called original sin. And so the need for a miraculous birth where God could enter the world without a human father and would be conceived by God the Holy Spirit where his eternal deity could take on sinless humanity. And so Paul's argument in Romans 5 is that just as Adam's one act had an effect in the entire human race, and the Bible has an explanation for death. The reason people age and get old, according to the Bible, is because sin entered into the universe. That's the explanation. It's not some evolutionary defect that we're eventually going to overcome. God gives a very clear reason, and he argues the benefits of Christ's death on the same reason, that just as one man could affect the entire race, so Jesus' death could affect the entire race. He could provide a way of salvation 
for every man, woman, boy, or girl who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. So at the heart of wrong views on inspiration is that the Bible is inspired in spots, that because they say it was written by fallible men, that some of their foibles bled through the pages of Scripture. So Paul, they would say, in saying that a woman should not be a pastor— in 1 Timothy 2 and in chapter 3 of the same letter, was just a a male chauvinist pig, and Paul was wrong. That's what they would say. And they would say, "Well, well, Paul, when he spoke against homosexuality, he was a homophobe. Listen, the president of the United States has endorsed a wicked position, as did Hillary Clinton yesterday, as did Rob Portman, the Republican, last week, as our vice president has, and God help us if our Supreme Court, who is right now working on these very issues, and we won't hear the results until June when they will reveal their decision, but God help us if they cease to define marriage as between a man and a woman. We will have reached the final stage of apostasy as a nation. And you just watch what God's going to allow to happen to this country. God help us. Uh, We have become a wicked people endorsing and giving credence to things that God calls an abomination. And so cooperative Baptists, you have cooperative Baptists right now that are endorsing homosexual behavior as an alternative lifestyle. And they're holding their state meeting right here in Beaufort next month. Listen, if I were attending a church that in any way, shape, or form identified themselves as a cooperative Baptist, I would leave tomorrow. Uh, That is anybody who questions the infallibility of the Bible, that it is totally inspired, is an agent of the devil. That's what the devil does. Did God really say? God didn't really mean that. That's the root of the temptation behind Eve. And so the devil is questioning the very first verse in the Bible. Barashit bara Elohim. In the beginning created God. Hashemayim v'yed ha'adetz. The heavens and the earth. That's the very first verse in the Bible. And if you can believe that verse, you can believe any verse in the Bible. But the devil doesn't want you to believe that. God didn't create the heavens and the earth. Evolution did. There was just some big bang out there in outer space. And it created some spark that evolved to where we are today. Yeah, that's a world without God, and that's what they want you to believe. And so um, it's a denial of historical Christianity. It's a denial of what the Lord Jesus taught because your argument really is with him. And so uh, I would abandon such a thing. But is there a, a flow to the Sermon on the Mount, or is it just a bunch of disconnected thoughts? No, there's a real flow. Uh, Jesus is the greatest preacher ever lived. So in the opening uh, sermon, he gives the Beatitudes and the reason for the sermon. Five, one through 20 would serve as an introduction um, where he gives these Beatitudes. He tells us we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. Don't think in verse 17, I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it until heaven and earth pass away. Not the smallest letter or stroke Uh, That's interesting. The smallest letter in the Hebrew language looks like an apostrophe in English. It's the Hebrew yod. A stroke would be in Hebrew, 
And he's describing here the Old Testament at this point, because the first word of the New Testament had not been penned, though Jesus promised it would be penned with equal authority and inspiration, would be like the difference between the letter O and the letter Q, the capital letter O, capital letter Q. There's just one little stroke of the pen that makes the distinguishing mark between those two letters. Jesus said not the smallest letter or stroke will pass away until it is fulfilled. Anyone who annuls one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And so he tells us, therefore, that our our righteousness has to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That if you have a righteousness that's scribal or Pharisaic in its dimensions, then you have the kind of righteousness that will never get you into heaven. And so then he goes on, 521 all the way here through our verse 28, and he teaches that our righteousness and our faith must, needs to be above average. It's not like their righteousness. The Pharisee says, well, I've never committed adultery. And Jesus said, if you lust in your heart at a woman, you've committed adultery. Um, and he goes on and he, he takes it to the spirit of the law. Um, and then when you come into chapter six, he, he argues not only must your faith be above average, it must be below the surface. And he begins to describe uh, not practicing our righteousness before men that, you know, if the only time I pray is public, then I'm a, I'm, I'm a hypocrite. If the only time I give is to be seen by men, then I'm a hypocrite. If the only time I fast is so that people can say, isn't he spiritual, then I'm a hypocrite. So your faith is above average, it's below the surface, and then when you come to the end of uh, chapter 7, and beginning in verse 13, he gives a conclusion to his sermon, where he talks about two roads, two trees, uh, two confessions, and two foundations. One that will bring a person and carry a person into heaven, the other that will carry a person into hell. So no, it's a beautifully put-together sermon, best sermon ever preached. Uh, You want to read it? It's called the Sermon on the Mount. That's what St. Augustine called it. Uh, He was the first to uh, coin that phrase to describe Matthew 5 through 7. But no, there's a a logic as our Savior is perfectly logical. He's the embodiment of truth. He's the greatest preacher who ever lived, and he gave a powerful, powerful oration there in Matthew 5 through 7. So your pastor was wrong. He's probably wrong because he has no insight to the word of God. If he did, he wouldn't be a cooperative Baptist. He'd abandon that group. Listen, if the Bible's in spots, inspired only in spots, then you have to be inspired to spot the spots. And that's why you got groups saying, well, this verse is true. God is love. But this verse over here, God is a consuming fire. I don't buy that. This verse is true over here. Be kind to one another. This verse over here, uh, that homosexuality is an abomination. I don't believe that. Listen, it's either all true or it's not true at all. And so you have to decide. A lot of questions we didn't get to. Um, You can email us if you'd like at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. God willing, we'll get to some of them next time. Thanks for being with us today. Hope you have a great day. May the Lord bless you as you seek to glorify Jesus Christ.